This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with Fingers crossed, everybody knows the war is over, everybody knows the good guys lost, everybody knows the fight was fixed, the poor stay poor, the rich get rich, that's how it goes, everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. So it's uh, about 10 after, uh, or about 10, 10.30, and I went down to Queen Street. I'm up on the second floor here at 5.50. I go down to Queen Street uh, because my uh, my trust trusty uh, co-host is, uh, is expected at that time. I go down there, and there's these... Uh, two gentlemen accosting him, and uh, they're just, you know, holding out their hand. And all I hear through the, the pane of glass door is Victor yelling, Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? I have no idea what that was about. Uh, Victor v- Vigiani. <laughs> bah, humbug. No, no, I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't believe that for a minute. If anyone holds Christmas dear and near to his heart, it would be uh, Victor Vigiani. How are you, my friend? Just fine. Fine, Richard. Uh, and are you in the Christmas spirit, despite uh, that little ruckus down there? <laughs> that was terrific. Good intro. Yes, getting there, getting there. Sort of gradually, I sort of ramp up to it very, very slowly, and then uh, eventually hits me when I see my grandchildren. Mm. Yes. That, that kind of does it for me. Oh, yeah. yeah. No question. I was telling you earlier, uh, we have a Christmas pageant coming up and uh, on the 16th. Our two little guys, they've been practicing away in the manger, and, I, and uh, you never can tell because the story sort of changes from day to day. But it sounds like North is going to be Joseph and uh, Zachary is going to be an angel. Mm-hmm. Not at all typecasting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. We have, uh, when do we not have uh, a compelling program? But especially tonight, this is, boy, oh, boy. I get, I get this email from Paula Harris, mm-hmm. who's standing by. Describing this story that she's about to uh, to lay on us, uh, this I mean this could be if 
if it's all true, this could be as big or bigger than Roswell, which is the archetype of, of UFO sightings, crashes, what have you. What do you make? What did you make of it when you got that email from Paula Harris? Well, in, in getting the email and then talking with Paula at length uh, after the email, I just said to myself, I reminded me of one of the quotes in the back of Leslie Kane's book. I forget who actually wrote the quote. Uh, one of the journalists, he said, well, this may not be the smoking gun, but I can smell the gunpowder. Uh, it reminded me of that of that idea that this could be something that is just so um, neatly packaged and and all there, uh, and it's, but it raises so many different questions. The more the more you find out about it, the more questions are raised, like why this happened, and then well, why didn't that happen? And you know, uh, the young, two young boys, and uh, it it just really um, I was astounded by the fact that all these images come to mind of these two children. Hiding and looking and watching and engaging this thing. Yeah, let's let's set you it know. up. We're talking August 1945, so mm-hmm. two full years yeah. before Roswell, New Mexico. You've got two Hispanic children, nine and seven, mm-hmm. and they witness a saucer crash in uh, on uh, on one of the boys' father's ranch right. in uh, San Antonio, New Mexico. Now here we are, 65 years later, and Jose Padilla and Remy Baca are about to, uh, well, they'll join us a little bit later in the program. Uh, But here to set it all up uh, and explain how this story was made, uh, or sort of came to her and and, uh, what she makes of it, is uh, Paula Harris. Uh, She is uh, an Italo-American photojournalist and investigative reporter in the field of extraterrestrial-related phenomena research. She's also a widely published freelance writer, especially in Europe, She's studied extraterrestrial-related phenomena since 1979 and is on personal terms with many of the leading researchers in the field. From 1980 to 86, she assisted Dr. J. Allen Hynek with his UFO investigation and has interviewed many top military witnesses concerning their involvement in the government truth embargo. In 1997, she met and interviewed Colonel Philip Corso in Roswell, New Mexico, and became a personal friend and confidant. She was instrumental in having his book, The Day After Roswell, for which she wrote the preface, translated into Italian. She consequently brought Colonel Corso to Italy for the editorial group Futuro, published... Uh, I won't attempt... My Italian is uh, a little rusty. <laughs> Non-existent, actually. Uh, anyway, uh, numerous t- television appearances. Uh, she returned to Roswell in the summer of 2003 for the American debut of her book, Connecting the Dots, Making Sense of the UFO Phenomenon. Her latest book... Uh, will be out uh, in February of 2011, and we'll find out about that as well. Uh, Paula Harris, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you, Richard, and good evening, gentlemen. Good to hear your voice, Paula. <laughs> Paula, how did this uh, this story of this UFO crash in 1945 uh, come to you? Well, uh, it came to me through a gentleman named William Brophy, whose father was a pilot and was stationed in San Antonio. And he began telling me that his father uh, had told him a lot of stories about what had happened around the Trinity site, which is the site of the atomic bomb blasts, as you know, the the experimentation that was done with the paperclip scientists down there in that area. And so Brophy had told me about his father. He told me about this crash in 1945, that his father was in charge of, of the, you know, the recovery. 
And he gave me the telephone number of Remy Baca, and he said, why don't you talk to him? He was the boy, he was one of the two boys that witnessed this crash. Well, it took a year and a half, Richard, because, you know, to get people's trust and to really talk to people, I had to speak to him on the phone for six months. Then I flew there uh, to uh, Gig Harbor, Washington, where he lives, uh, to not only see him, but see the medals that he had. And in two days, I realized that this man was telling the truth. And uh, he's, very, he's very skeptical of a lot of other, you know, researchers and situations. He trusted me with the story. He uh, had me talk to the nine-year-old, who is Jose Padilla, who lives in California. And slowly but surely, with my interview, which is on my website, it's almost 32 pages, I began asking them the questions that you would ask them about a historic event in 1945, two years before Roswell. Now, San Antonio, you must know, is 100 miles from Roswell and some 30 miles, I think, from the Trinity, uh, from the White Sands compound there where they were testing the atomic bomb. And both gentlemen, uh, as children, lived through that blast, through that testing. And they will tell you that in person. So these uh, boys at the time, age nine and seven, now in their, when you first met them, in their early 70s. Right. Or late 60s. And uh, they, and yeah, they... well, one is in his late 60s, the other in his 74, Jose is 74. These are, you know, they've come to a certain age now where they think it's okay. Their families have uh, agreed, because you have to have the support of your family when you're going to go public like this to tell the story. Now, prior to speaking to you, had they ever talked publicly about this event? Well, yeah. I mean, Remy told me he'd gone up to Stanton Friedman and mentioned it and gone up to a lot of other researchers and mentioned it, and they didn't, they didn't jump on it. They didn't uh, have the time to look into it that much. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sad in a lot of ways because here's two witnesses. These aren't storytellers. These are the two people that were there. And they want someone to look at their story in detail and to, of course, archive it for history. And nobody has time. It's like everybody's into their own thing. Nobody had time. I have done similar stories, plus it was given to me by the son of the pilot who was involved. So that's a secondhand witness right there. Uh, and I've, you know, I uh, have looked into the, the whole background uh, of this, and, and besides being a true story, it's a historical fact. It's become a historical fact with a lot of questions. I mean, Victor was right. There's so many questions around this as, as far as, you know, why the crash, why there, uh, you know, what the creatures were, were like. Um, it's just a whole whole set of questions comes from this. Let's go back to Stanton Friedman for a second, uh, Paula. Um, you know, we all know that Stanton did some major investigation of the Roswell, uh, or the corona crash. Um, is it just a matter of him not having the time, uh, or do you think, is it as within you and I know within the UFO research community, as soon as something comes up, there's automatically, even within the UFO research community, a lot of skepticism seeps in among researchers, and they almost uh, are at a point where uh, even now they just don't want to touch anything that, that appears in any way, shape, or form to be something counter to what they've already investigated. Did that seep into perhaps uh, Stanton or other researchers' uh, sort of impression about what this crash uh, event may have uh, held? 
No, I think it takes a lot of work, Victor. Uh, you know, and he's Roswell. He's always been Mr. Roswell. It's always been about Roswell. It's always been about the Majestic 12 files for him. And for him to do this work, I mean, I don't see him getting on a plane and flying to Remy's house. I mean, <laughs> you know, one of the things I've got to say in, in all humility is I was trained by Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And any of the interviews I've ever done, I've never been on the phone. I can't do anything on a phone. Mm-hmm. I have to go there. I, uh, you know, I have mm-hmm. to fly to NASA like I did for Clark McClellan. I have to fly to Canada as I did for Paul Hallier. I'm one of the only people that gets on a plane and goes there. And it costs a lot of money. And, and it's coming out of my own pocket. And, and I don't think there are too many field researchers. Can you imagine trying to research this on the telephone? Impossible. Paula, stay with us. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Victor Vigiani in studio. We're talking about a UFO crash retrieval in 1945, two years before Roswell, in San Antonio, New Mexico. A stone's throw from the White Sands Proving Grounds where they tested the A-bomb. Is there a connection? We'll find out. The two witnesses will join us later. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Paula Harris is with us, investigative reporter in the field of extraterrestrial-related phenomena, and we're discussing a UFO crash in 1945 in San Antonio, New Mexico. Two young Hispanic children, aged nine and seven, witnessed the crash, saw creatures, quote, unquote, inside, alive. Uh, They'll be along in uh, about 40 minutes' time uh, to tell us uh, what they saw and what they know. And uh, Apollo Harris, as I said, went out and um, interviewed these individuals and was convinced that they were telling the truth. Now, Paula, can you give us a little bit of a timeline here? Uh, I mean, we'll hear it again from the witnesses, but as uh, you first heard it, what? give us a thumbnail sketch of what actually happened. Well, it was in August, of, uh, around August 15th of, of 1945, and um, Jose Padilla's father, this is a nine-year-old, uh, asked the two boys to go out and look for a a cow that was calving, and they were, these were special cows flown in from Spain. They were a, a special breed of cow, so he's very concerned. And then what happened when the boys went and found the cow, found that she had had the calf and so forth, there was a uh, thunder and lightning storm, a major uh, tempest. And, you know, this is important because that is the, the weather conditions around the Roswell crash also. There seemed to be some kind of interfer- interference with lightning and the navigational system of these craft that caused them to come down. And so there was this huge storm, and all at once they heard what's like a sonic boom, and they saw an avocado-shaped round craft come in. It took out a radar tower. It did almost a half-a-mile trench, and I saw pictures of the trench. Uh, uh, on the Padilla property, and then it stopped. And, of course, there was a lot of smoke, and since there was mesquite around, there was a lot of uh, bushes on fire. The two little boys saw it. 
they walked up to it and they had binoculars and uh, looked inside, and that's when they'll tell you they saw the creatures. Now, did they hear, did they feel the creatures were hurt? They're going to tell you about a high-pitched sound they heard. They felt that there was a, the, the creatures were in pain of some kind, and, they, and the smaller one, uh, Remy, was terrified. He was scared. The, the older one, who's a little bit more courageous, he's the one that actually went in and pulled out the piece from the inside after the recovery, uh, a piece which is very important because it's been analyzed. The older one, Jose, is very mischievous. And after three days of recovery, when the, the flatbed truck with the craft was unattended, he's the one that jumped on the flatbed truck. And this is historical because we've never had a piece from the inside of a craft before. There's a lot of people that say they have pieces from debris on the outside of, of uh, you know, a, a, um, a spaceship. So it, there's a lot of historical points to this. What about the, uh, the military intervention? Uh, there's a state police involved, apparently, to begin with, uh, with um, Jose's dad, I believe, and then yeah. there was that some was, military that was involvement. was Eddie Apodaca. It was the sheriff. Mm-hmm. What had happened is when the boys went back and told the father what they had seen, um, Mr. Padilla called Sheriff Eddie Apodaca, and they went over to see what, what you know, the situation was, and they did see the craft. They didn't see the creatures anymore because a piece had broken off, you know, and uh, that's where the little boys had seen the creatures. Now, what happened right after that was they called the military. The military came in and said that they needed to replace uh, Jose Padilla's father's gate because they were recovering a weather balloon and it would not fit through the gate and of course his dad said why do you have to you know take apart my whole fence and the gate uh and they they said that 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 the uh you know the size of this thing would not go through his gate so you know it, it was on private property that it happened and um they had interaction with the military. Later on, the military came to ask if the boys had taken any pieces, which they had, uh, and the boys denied it because they buried the piece. And it, they will tell you interesting stories about how they buried it, where they buried the bigger piece, the one that they pulled off from the inside of the ship. And it's just absolutely fascinating. Now, uh, Jose Padilla has a photographic memory, so he'll give you details. Uh, but Remy, you know, is writing the book, you know, Born on the Edge of Ground Zero, Living in the Shadow of Area 51. He's actually writing the book and putting this together. And it's only, everybody asks, why now? Well, because for the longest time, Remy's wife, who is Roman Catholic, did not believe in UFOs and did not want her husband speaking, you know, would not discuss it until they themselves uh, Remy and his wife Virginia in Washington State had a sighting in 1994 of a craft right over their house. Then when she saw the craft, she said to her husband, it's okay, now we'll talk about it, we can talk about it. You know, what, what really comes to mind to me is not only the timing of them coming forward uh, and the lack of the timing, uh, if, if they are coming forward now at this point, Paula, uh, I got the sense in speaking with Remy a little earlier um, uh, 
that now they've come forward, would would it not be in their interest to bring this forward uh, with with media involvement? Let's say some something similar to a press conference or some sort of way that this information, with analysis of the parts, and could come forward and utilize the media in the way that it's more sophisticated now, obviously. And listen, put this out on the line and say, listen, here's another crash that's even more significant than uh, than Roswell because we've got lots more evidence uh, about what went on, even though the military involvement wasn't as great. Um, what, what about that way of coming forward that they've chosen as opposed to coming forward in a different way? Well, let me tell you, first of all, they're very simple men, both of them. They're very, you know, humble people. And second of all, I mean, people aren't going to like to hear this, but we have done radio shows, and we've done, uh, I have uh, released a story in Italy, and people are not jumping on it. It's almost like nobody cares. I can't believe that nobody would care, but it, it's true. I think that people are so, today the general public is so inundated with their own problems, with the economic crisis, with their own uh, personal situations that this doesn't mean anything to them, uh, Victor, which is so sad because I look at it as history. It's the history of our planet. is the history of the visitations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they came forward. They had talked to Ryan Wood some years ago about this, and he wrote the, you know, MJ-12 book, and his father uh, was involved, you know, Ryan and Bob Wood were involved with the MJ-12 papers. And nothing came from that. It, it's not so much... A press conference that would do it. It's whether the media would grab hold of it Mm -hmm. and whether ordinary general public cares. And this is very disappointing. All right, Paula, uh, stay with us. We'll continue to discuss the historical event of 1945, August, in San Antonio, New Mexico. Paula Harris, journalist on the line. Her website paulaharris.com, P-A-O-L-A, Harris, P-A-O-L-A, harris.com. Her new book, due out early in 2011, Exopolitics, Stargate to a New Reality. Victor Vigiani in studio from Exopolitics Canada. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Jose Padilla and Remy Baca will uh, join us shortly, the two witnesses to this UFO crash in 1945. They saw creatures inside the craft. They were nine and seven at the time. Now, obviously, do the math, 65 years later, in their uh, early 70s. Paula Harris stays with us for a few moments, giving us the the timeline and... uh, explaining the story as she sees it. Paula, I have to ask you, you are an investigative reporter. What, I mean, I know what it's like when you're sitting across from someone and they're telling you a story. They're, they're relaying events and you're listening uh, to the details, the incredible details. And you, uh, you know, you're, you're hearing this sincerity come across in their voice. But other than that, what else do you go by in order to, to gauge the veracity of this, of this story? Well, I think there's a difference between someone telling a story and somebody remembering, remembering uh, um, their childhood or remembering details. Uh, and I, when I'm sitting across from them, if they're remembering and they remember the details and they don't, 
it's 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 very obvious because they get emotionally involved. They're emotionally involved in what they're telling. And in the case of Remy, since I've been talking to him for a year and a half, and, and I waited a year and a half before releasing the story, I wanted to make sure everything was, you know, um, uh, that I had some of the documents that, that Brophy gave me, plus uh, we were looking at the historical background. Because, you know, Remy used to work in Washington state government, and he researched uh, his own story. I mean, he got the, some of the, the, the questions answered that he had about what all happened there. And there, you know, these these cases have been, um, they've kind of been recognized. The 1945 crashes in Ryan Wood's book of crash retrievals, it's in there. Uh, it, there's there's uh, been several crash, crash retrievals all over the world. Uh, you know, these craft do not just crash here, they crash in uh, other countries also. And so I have a background where... When he tells me something, it fits in with something else. It's 30 years now that I've been doing this. So when he's telling me something, it fits in with something I already know. So, so this is in... It, you the, know, it's easy. Yeah, this is in Ryan Woods' book? Uh, they yes, listed it's, listed it's as a crash. Yeah. Okay, okay. Any, any yeah. parallels between their stories, and I'm talking now specifically about the, the physical description of the craft and the material and maybe some of the material that they, they took away with them. And a parallel between that and, let's say, Jesse Marcel Jr. and what he saw, you know, laid out on his kitchen floor when his father came, came back from, the, from, from the, the foster ranch. Any parallels with the description of the, the physical materials? Yeah. Uh, well, Brophy was telling me that his father said there were, that what he cleaned up was, was a lot of material that had hieroglyphic-type writing on it. That that uh, you know this the, like the I beam that Jesse Marcel and Jesse Marcel is also a good friend of mine. So I've had him in my home in Rome when I was living in Rome. So I've talked to him about what he saw. By the way, it's so ridiculous that the United States Air Force is still saying that that was a weather balloon and those were crash test dummies, and that is the official word of the Air Force. Somebody like Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, knows that his father didn't bring home pieces of a weather balloon at midnight to show his family. Uh, but anyway, yes, going back to the answer of that question, um, Remy will tell you he picked up a piece of, of uh, what looked like aluminum foil that when he scrunched it up went back to its original form. He put it in his uh, Prince Albert, uh, you know, a tobacco can, kept it there for a long time until it came time to fix a windmill on the property, and he used that to fix the windmill. I mean, these, these stories are so simple because these are simple folks. Uh, so that that piece of aluminum type uh, material he thinks is uh, was uh, you know very much the outside part of the craft. Also, he said that he saw something that looked like angel hair, which is uh, and he they took it home to to trim the Christmas tree. Oh my! Only the I mean, most you know, perhaps the most important is. artifacts in the history of mankind, <laughs> and they're trimming their tree with yeah, well, it and fixing windmills. Yeah. Who, they don't know anything about UFOs. They didn't read anything. There was no television at the time. They they didn't, you know, they didn't know anything about any of this. They, it wasn't in their data bank, in their brains. They, did, they had no exposure to it. So they didn't know what they were picking off when they picked off this angel hair. And from my doing the Charles Hall story, he told me, because he worked at Area 51, that burnt fiber optics appear as angel hair, appear as stringy white stuff. Hmm. So we we got to look at not only this, 
But the fact that if you read Corso's book, and they, when they read Corso's book, it all fit together, uh, that, you know, that not only was there integrated circuits inside the piece they took, the electron microscope uh, picture is on my website, but they had fiber optics that when they were burned looked like, you know, this stringy stuff. And so we've got this technology in 1945. Now, the big argument everybody uses against Corso is, yeah, he got the artifacts in 1960, and we all, all that stuff was already in the main, um, in the main uh, you know, in, in, in the mainstream. Well, of course, because in 1947, the Army and the Air Force were together. It was Army Air Corps. They split up in 48. Well, you don't think that the Air Force had some of this, that they just didn't have a Corso to talk about, that they didn't start back engineering? In 1948, so it was already in the mainstream. You know, it's it's. Uh, if you talk to Remy at length about back engineering, is 100% convinced it was done. What about the dissimilarity in the way the military reacted at Roswell? Well, at the crash of Corona, uh, there was just a huge number of, of military personnel that descended on the place and the town itself. It was just like a big whoosh. But in San Antonio, um, there was virtually zero, virtually nothing except for four or five guys. The the thing is, is it's really weird, because this could have been one of the first crashes, and the only people that could clean it up were the same young men that were working on the, uh, you know, the atomic bomb that were there in the the Trinity site. They didn't wear hazmat suits. They weren't worried about radiation. And the strangest thing of all, they put this thing on the flatbed truck, they put a tarp over it, and they go into the Owl Cafe, which is still there, to have a drink or something to eat, and they leave it unattended. Yeah. Now, that is just, but they were young men. Remy says, well, they were young men. They didn't know what they were doing. In fact, some of them didn't even pick up the pieces. They threw them in a trench. The little boy were, uh, were looking at these guys, throwing them in a hole. What's happening with the... feel like picking it up. What's picking... happening with the Padilla Ranch now? Well, you know, they had a 100-year lease on that ranch because it, I think it's Bureau of Land Management land. And uh, his son, Jose's son, lives there. And Jose told me that uh, he, he plans to have all his sons return there, and he wants to retire on that ranch. It's, it's a lot of acres. I think it's over 100, uh, uh, over 100 acres. And he, he basically... Uh, they, they know where the crash site is, but because the roads have changed, the overpasses have changed, they're the only ones that really know. And they know that if they, you know, talk about it, the whole world will be out there. And so, you know, they're, they just want the story to come out about their life, their living there in San Antonio and what happened to them. And they'd like to f- keep the focus on that. Do they feel unburdened now that they've come forward, at least, and you're getting the story out? Yeah, they told me, though, they don't want to talk about it too long. In other words, they don't want their lives disrupted. They, they're doing it now, and amazingly enough, if we could get this story out all over the world, it'll come into the United States through the back door. I mean, it's just like we had to take Corso to Italy before they start paying attention to him now. It's almost like, you know, you're talking about it in Canada, then maybe the United States will take it seriously. It's, it is so strange with this disclosure movement with disclosure having to happen somewhere other than the United States, that you're watching the traces of this go around the world and back in again. And, uh, you know, they basically are very humble guys, and they, they don't want a lot of publicity, but they do want to tell it. 
it's history for them. They've got children and grandchildren, and they and I look at it this way: it's a story for me that cost me money to do, but it's going to go in a book where it's going into libraries all over the world, and I've had me having it translated and. Maybe a hundred years from now, when we have disclosure, you're going to have the testimony of first-hand witnesses, which is the most important testimony of all. We know that Larry King has taken up some of this information and ran with it with different aspects of the UFO phenomenon. Uh, number one, if he's around to do something about this, uh, would you think that uh, either Remy and Jose or representatives? If they were to um, come forward, would they be even willing to take the gauntlet up and uh, appear on Larry King's show to get this thing moving in mainstream media? Uh, well, first of all, I've been in contact with James Fox, who's been up there with them, and he's very close to uh, to, uh, to Larry King. But, you know, Richard, one of the things is that Larry always has the debunkers, and why put those guys through that? He has debunkers on one side and the real people on the other. Can you imagine arguing with a Jesse Marcel Jr. or an Edgar Mitchell, you know, telling them they're delusional? You know, this is exactly what happens, though, on, a, on that kind of show, uh, where, you know, we have the, the, uh, the SETI guys and, and, you know, the scientists uh, on one side and, and who don't bother even to read the story, and the real witnesses on the other side. It's embarrassing. When, uh, when Remy was in Washington and doing the research on this story, when he was on the inside, did he uncover any uh, declassified uh, documents that, that made mention any of any of this? Any, any governmental uh, memos or anything like that? Well, I think you need to ask him about this, and I don't know how much he's willing to talk about it, but he has re researched his own story because he worked in, in Washington state government. He is a, a Latino activist. Uh, and very proud of it. And he's, he's uh, you know, he's, he's seen the whole picture. He, um, for him, reading Corso's book and, see, and seeing, you know, the, uh, the picture of the integrated circuits inside his piece of metal, um, you know, these insect-like things, really opened the door as far as what back engineering. He also, I think, told me that he worked at Boeing for a little while. So he knows some of the inside information. Now, that might be better kept maybe for another show in that I think you should get their testimony as, uh, you know, day by day and, and minute by minute of what they lived through because they, those two little boys were traumatized, <laughs> you can imagine, by what they lived through. And then uh, moving apart and then coming together later on in their lives. I can't imagine how that must have altered the course of their lives and how things might have been different uh, had they not seen what they had seen. Did they express to you at any point that they had wished that this had never happened to them? No, they didn't. They were in wonderment. It's not that they... They, they, they just are, you know, as curious as we are. They're, I call it wonderment. They're in fascination that we are not alone because, see, no negative thing came... From, from their situation. They were told not to talk about it, but they weren't under any, you know, military kind of situation where they had to take an oath. They were, they were trying to piece together what our universe is like. And, you know, the ultimate message, which we haven't talked about, is why would a craft be in that area? Well, I think that Remy will tell you there is a very real message of anti-nuclear here. 
We don't need to just listen to Robert Salas and Hastings and those guys at, wa- at the Washington Press Club about the appearance of UFOs over nuclear missile silos and, and installations. This is a real situation where whoever was visiting was in the right place because they were wondering what we were doing uh, in our history. And the, uh, I think the atomic bomb testing opened up not only portholes, but opened up a, a real a concern for, for these beings. That's right, because if we flash ahead to two years to 47, that's where the, the embryonic nuclear arsenal of the, uh, the United States was, was stationed at Roswell Airfield. And uh, two years earlier, as you say, just a stone's throw from uh, White Sands, where the Trinity uh, uh, testing grounds were for, uh, I guess, the completion of the Manhattan Project. So uh, it, it, when you start to connect the dots, it makes sense that, you know, why so many UFO uh, crashes in and around uh, New Mexico? It's uh, yeah, New, New Mexico is a very fascinating place. I'm going to add another little tidbit of information. That's where... Sir Richard Branson and Bert Rutan are building Virgin Galactic. You want to explain that to me? That's exactly where civilian spacecraft uh, visits, or I mean, uh, travel is going to begin, right there, about 100 miles from Roswell, where they've already completed a spaceport. Interesting, interesting. What's, uh, Paula, you, you, the new book is coming out, is it January or February? It's February. It'll be at the International UFO Congress in Phoenix, Arizona. And it is called uh, Exopolitics, Stargate to a New Reality, and it has 15 different interviews, including the, you know, the French pilot Jean-Jacques Duboc, who is part of the Cometa Report, pilot reports, uh, you know, people, scientists who are working on zero energy. It's just a historical, my historical contribution to the UFO field. I like it when it's very serious, when it's very scholastic and very academic. And I'm hoping some people will still read. Well, we can only hope, uh, because stories like this must be told. And we thank you for bringing it to our attention. Thank you, Paula. Thank you for covering it. All right, Paula Harris, and the new book is Exopolitics, Stargate to a New Reality, out in uh, February 2011. The website, paulaharris.com, P-A-O-L-A, P-A-O-L-A, harris.com. When we come back, Jose Padilla and Remy Baca, now in their early 70s, but 65 years ago, then 9 and 7, they were first-hand witnesses to a UFO crash, and we'll find out what they saw in just a moment. Stay with us. set you free. But first, it'll really take you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics Canada is with me for what uh, may be, in fact, a very historic moment as we discuss an alleged UFO crash in San Antonio, New Mexico, back in 1945. 
two Hispanic children, boys, aged nine and seven, witnessed what appeared to be a saucer crash in the town of San Antonio. Here we are 65 years later, and Jose Padilla and Remy Baca, eyewitnesses to the event, are about to tell us what they saw. And uh, I believe we have... Uh, do we have both gentlemen on the air, uh, uh, Dan? Okay, we have Remy Baca on the uh, the line. Are you in uh, Washington, uh, sir, Remy? Yes, I'm in Washington. Ah, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Thank you for joining us. How do you feel uh, about coming forward at this at this point in your in your life? Uh, how, how would you describe it emotionally? Is it is it difficult, painful? Are you relieved? Well, we're you know we're ready to disclose. Uh, Essentially, we've uh, kind of worked towards this, you know, over the last, uh, you know, 10 years or so. Does part of you wish you'd never seen what you saw 65 years ago? Well, it would have probably been, you know, it would have probably been, been a, probably an easier life. How did it affect you growing up and uh, after seeing what you saw, particularly seeing... Uh, uh, alien creatures inside the craft. How did it affect your whole outlook on life? Well, uh, you know, we were, we, you know, I was pretty young at that time, you know, at, at the age of seven, so it was, uh, it was hard to understand. Uh, so we had to rely a lot on what our adult, what el- our elders, uh, you know, told us and, and, and how they, you know, what they told us to do. And we pretty much followed uh, their advice. Uh, as an example, the uh, uh, the policeman uh, and uh, also uh, Mr. Padilla, and uh, they told us to pretty well keep it to ourselves. And in fact, the policeman, uh, you know, told us that uh, if anybody wants asked us any questions about it, uh, uh, to send them to them, uh, to him, and he would answer, you know, any questions anybody had. All right. Uh, so I'm they a- kind of sheltered us in a, in a way. Okay. I'm, I'm told that we now have Jose Padilla on the line. Uh, Jose, are you with us? Yes. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, and uh, also joining me in studio is uh, Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics uh, Canada. Thank you. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. Uh, Jose and Remy, uh, we heard from Paula Harris um, uh, earlier, and she sort of laid out a, a rough timeline, but uh, why don't we, we get uh, a, a, either of you, both of you, just to... Uh, to take us back to that day, was it August 15th of 45? And, uh, Jose, your father sending you out on a little mission to look for a, for a, a cow that was uh, ready to have a, a calf? Yes, it was. Okay, take us back to that day. Okay, it was uh, August 16th, 1945. It was about uh, 10.30 in the morning when uh, Remy and I uh, mounted our horses to go hunt for a uh, cow that was going to be calved and uh, headed up to the rugged mountains. And uh, it started to get uh, cloudy uh, half of the way. And a storm hit us, you know, lightning and rain. So we uh, dodged uh, ourselves underneath a, a cliff rocks and uh, while we were waiting for the rain to to stop we heard a sonic boom and uh, I told Remy uh, that must be another bomb test and he says well 
it's a, he says, no, he says, look up. And I looked up there, and he says, look at the smoke on the other side of the ridge. By that time, you know, we heard some noises down down the ridge there. And uh, Remy says, look, he says, there's a cow right there with a calf. And we stopped there for a little while, but uh, we got paying attention up to the other side of the ridge where that smoke was coming up. So we got on our horses, took off again, came uh, over the ridge, and uh, we seen this uh, big, huge uh, object that was crashed into the ground. Remy, what did that object look like? Describe it. Well, to me, okay, because I didn't have anything to compare it with as a, as a seven-year-old uh, and haven't even uh, uh, enrolled in the first grade. All right? It looked like an avocado, avocado-shaped. Right. Yeah, and that's essentially what the... Metallic? Um, what color? It was, uh, yeah, uh, a dull uh, metallic, a dull aluminum uh, uh, color with what we could see because of the, you know, some of the obstructions and then also the, the smoke. And it was buried in the in the sand, was it? It wasn't exactly buried. It was uh, some of it was under was had uh, wedged into the uh, into the into the sand. Uh, about how deep was the the trough? Uh, the trough that this thing. Uh, when I talked to Jose, he indicated that it didn't just land in, in sort of a ninety degree angle. It sort of skidded down uh, across skidded, the land. Yeah, it's it's it was it skidded. Uh, it, it, well, the first thing that we, one of the things that we saw was about a, uh, you know, like a, almost like a uh, 50, you know, 50 foot uh, skid marks, you know, that, that, that we could see, uh, uh, like a grader had gone through, maybe a, you know, 30, 40, 50 foot grader had gone through, a road grader. I see. You know, and, and graded the area. And so that's what we saw. And then at the end of that is, uh, is this object. How large was it? Well, you know, at that time we couldn't, you know, we couldn't tell. But later on, after when we, uh, you know, when they put it on a on a on the uh, low boy on the on the trailer, uh, and, and so forth, we uh, walked it off, and uh, as best as we could tell, uh, it was uh, uh, probably uh, you know twenty five to thirty feet. Uh, 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 long and about fourteen foot tall. Uh, fourteen feet tall and it may have been smaller, but that's what we could tell by stepping it off. Wow, that's a large that's a large craft. It's a large craft, yeah. And how long did you stay at the site watching this particular event sort of unfold well, we before were, you? We we would you know we would uh, we stayed there the first day we uh, uh, we were there probably uh, I don't know. Didn't have a watch, so, you know. Of course, you know. yeah. But, uh, I don't know, 35, 40 minutes, maybe, or more. How soon before you actually approached the craft? Uh, we never approached the craft at that point. Uh, we, uh, uh, lo- we were looking through the Jose's binoculars, and uh, uh, we, we never really did go into the craft at that point. So basically, it was, uh, it was another. It was it was another day. I see. You know that we uh, when we uh, uh, when we approached the crash, it took uh, it was a uh, it was several days 
that uh, that it took for them to uh, uh, to get that on the trailer. They had to go through a a, a process of uh, uh, of of building when the, when the you know when the uh, uh, the the military came. Uh, so they uh, uh, and you know and they built a uh, a frame. Uh, to on, on top of the you know on top of the trailer once they they have to bring in the grader to grade in the road so they could bring in a a truck they got uh, in fact the uh, I'll I'll have Jose explain that to you because his dad was involved with the uh, uh, with the military that came into his house well ho- ho- before Jose I, I get you to do that we'll we'll take a quick uh, time out but um, uh, when we come back on the other side of this break Jose I'll get you to maybe explain I guess what you said to your dad. Upon returning home, he's waiting anxiously for news about his prized herd of cows and a new calf, perhaps, and you've got another bombshell to lay on him. We'll find out what his reaction was, what you told him, and then we'll find out at what point the military came on the scene and then when you went back to the craft and what you saw. Jose Padilla and Reme Baca, two eyewitnesses to a UFO crash in San Antonio, New Mexico, in August of 1945. You're hearing it here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Next week on the program, that would be Sunday, December the 19th. We'll delve into the whole WikiLeaks scandal. Just a quick... Note here on the website, richardserrett.com. The Your Call online poll this week, of course, as we've just uh, marked the 30th anniversary of the murder of John Lennon, the question is, who killed John Lennon? And here are the results thus far. 45% of you, 45.7% say Mark Chapman was a mind-controlled patsy. Uh, Let's see, 37% say he acted alone. 10.9% of you say he was possessed by demons. And... 6.5% 6.5% of you believe that Dakota Dorman and CIA, CIA asset Jose Perdomo was in fact the, uh, the gunman responsible for the assassination of the former Beatle. All right, back to San Antonio, New Mexico, 65 years ago, two Hispanic children witnessing a, uh, a vehicle which appeared to be of extraterrestrial origin crashing and uh, this is just uh, new to, I'm guessing, 90% of you listening to this program tonight. And this is potentially an, an historical event. Victor? Yeah, there are so many, uh, gentlemen, there are so many sort of touch points to this story in reading Paula's interview and then speaking with you uh, both the other day. Uh, I want to go and, and provide our listeners with as much uh, detailed information as we can. And what I'd like to do is go back to the day when you, we just discussed about the crash and you were looking at the, uh, at, the, at the craft and you noticed a large hole in the side and you were watching it through the binoculars. And after sort of the dust settled, quote unquote, which there was a lot of, I recall, Remy, uh, you say, I'd like to get your, your impressions too, uh, Jose, that you actually had some, first of all, you heard some sort of buzzing sound when you saw the creatures going back and forth within this craft. And then there was some type of uh, telepathic, or call it what you want, 
um, communication that you that you felt in your minds. Could you tell us what you saw and then what you felt in regard to that? Then maybe we can start with you, Remy. Well, essentially, while we were there uh, looking through the binoculars, we switch off on it. Uh, at first, Jose would describe what he saw, and then then I looked through there, uh, and there was. Uh, there was some creatures in there moving back and forth. And uh, they were different uh, than uh, what we were used to seeing. Uh, they, uh, they, as best as I could describe it at that time, uh, is that they would look like a campamocha. That's a Spanish word That's a, for uh, dragonfly. But, you know, it's, we're talking about the head. Okay, that's what one of the things that was very visible mm-hmm. is the head and and the eyes of a of a dragonfly. And uh, they were moving back and forth. And what was very different from that from for me anyway was that I was beginning to feel like I felt whenever we went to a funeral. Some real sadness come over me, uh, and some. Uh, and so I began to really get concerned about them, uh, and uh, not only sadness, but then the, there was a, a high-pitched sound uh, that came from there. And I don't know whether it came from them or it came from the craft or whatever, but in any event, there was this high-pitched sound like you would hear from a, uh, from a dying rabbit when a, when a rabbit's hurt. It's a real high-pitched sound. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, uh, I've got these pictures coming through in my mind. Uh, uh, later on in life, I you know, could figure out that it was like uh, in the old television sets, when the, when the picture was rolling, they called it rolling, you know, going down. Right, the horizontal hold wasn't holding. Right, yeah. Anyway, uh, that's uh, kind of like what uh, you know what I was uh, seeing. And uh, in addition to that, then there would be these pictures would have like buildings crumbling and fire, uh, and uh, you could see masses of, of people down at the bottom and all this stuff falling on them and so forth. Re- I mean, some real devastation. And you're talking about really high buildings. Now at that age and where I was, where I lived, uh, the the only buildings we had were one-story adobe buildings. But these were not adobe buildings. These were made out of something else, and they were real tall. You know, I there was nowhere that I would have seen a building like that. Nothing to compare with. Are these images uh, that you're remembering? Are you remembering them? Those were the images that you you saw back then looking into the craft or is are these images that came into your 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 memory later no these images are coming through me from those creatures as, as best as i can tell while we're look we're st- while we're looking at the craft from uh you know a couple of a uh, couple of hundred yards away uh Something like that, yeah. Okay. Was, was the emotion of sadness that you described earlier, did you feel that was coming from you internally, or do you, because you felt a certain way about the creatures, or was that emotion being transmitted from them to you, or can I, you tell? I, can it, you tell? It sure felt like it was coming from them, mm-hmm. uh, because I had no, no real reason to be 
uh, you know, to be sad at that point because I, I didn't know what the, the status was, uh, you know, whether, you know, but they were like telling me that they were hurt. Okay. Just, and uh, oh, raising that concern and uh, as such, yeah. Jose, could I just sort of take a moment with you and uh, just sort of um, in just detail your accounts as you remember it. And I know Paula said that you you had or still have a photographic memory. That means something to me because I have a family member who's who has that gift or curse, depending which way you want to look at it. Could you just run by what you experienced and what you saw and how you felt? Well, um, when uh, I was looking through the binoculars and I seen those creatures, three creatures running back and forth, uh, I felt, you know, that... Uh, 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 those little creatures were were injured, and I would felt like you know like uh, if I would, I, w- I wanted to go in there to help them you know mm-hmm. because I know for a fact you know that they were they were hurt the reason why they were squealing out like that on the high pitch and uh, uh, I uh, told Remy you know that it's, I think I'll go in there and help them you know uh, and uh, he just wouldn't let me. There were three creatures, as as you can best three. three. And Asa, uh, Reme described the head as appearing sort of insect-like, uh, dragonfly. Uh, uh, yeah, like a well, a dragonfly or uh, a red fire ant. The head, a red fire ant standing upright. And what about the rest of the body? Uh, the arms were long, longer than uh, usual, you know. But like I said, uh, they were short uh, creatures, you know. Short creatures, and were they were they wearing uh, clothes of any sort? Uh, uh, um, no, it's just uh, like um, it would have been the skin, you know, because I couldn't see no ears on them. It's just a, a shiny uh, 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 overall what they had, or it, maybe it was their body the way it was. So coveralls, or it could have just been their their skin. It's hard to tell. Yes. The skin, you know, and that's that's about it, you know. But I noticed that the arms were longer than uh, what they supposed, like us, you know. I mean, uh, we have a normal arms. But overall, a short stature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you getting the same type of mental images, uh, Jose? Uh, yes, I was. What would uh, describe that to us? Uh, well, uh, felt uh, well, nervous. I see. Because I never seen anything like this before in my life, you know. Now, was that nervousness coming from within you? Because you know you're, you know you're a nine year old boy, and uh, you know was or, from, or from uh, them. From in there. I see. I mean, uh, I got chills once in a while. Mm-hmm. At this point, um, when you're preparing, I guess to go back home, were you discussing with each other? Okay, what are we going to say to my dad? Well, um, that's when I, I decided to see if I could go in there to help him. And when uh, Remy didn't let me, he started crying. Uh, we just uh, made plans and uh, hop on the horses, you know, and go back to the ranch. But about that time, you know, it was getting uh, kind of dark in the evening. And uh, we just went ahead and uh, hop on the horses and I went back to the ranch. And what did you say to your dad? Well, it was pitch dark when we got down to the ranch, and I uh, got off, and he was he was waiting for us there. And uh, 
jump off the horses. And he says, what happened? You know, what kept you so long? I says, well, we found the cow and the calf, and they're doing good. And I turned around, and I tell, told him, uh, we found something else. Something else and, indeed. And he was surprised. So he started listening to us. We explained to him that we had seen this big object fell down, you know, and uh, these three little creatures running back and forth in, in it. And uh, for a while, you know, he just wouldn't believe us. And he says, well, we'll wait a couple of days, you know, and we'll go back over and check it. And it was a couple of days? Uh, it was uh, a couple of days after that. Uh, he contacted uh, a friend of ours, who was a highway patrolman, and uh, that highway patrolman uh, went on his car with my dad, and we uh, took my pickup truck, and uh, we went out there to that uh, side. When we got down to where the uh, crash site was, uh, we stopped there, and uh, we couldn't see nothing. No sign of the craft? No sign of the craft. But that was an account of the, the way the sun was shining. You're giving a glare to it. And uh, we finally got off, you know, and walked a little while. That's when uh, Remy says, hey, look, there it is right there. But it, it was covered up with uh, uh, something like dust, a degree. Dust and debris, yes. And uh, that's when that uh, patrolman and my dad uh, told us to stay behind. And how, they went ahead and, and uh, walked into it. How long did they... And so you're, stand, you're back in the pickup truck. Was, uh, was Remy with you at that point? Yes. Okay, and you're back in the pickup truck, and your father and the highway patrolman walked towards the craft? They walked towards the craft, and uh, they walked in, in through that, uh, that hole that was in the craft. And they went right inside the craft? Uh, there was nothing there. They, they went in there, and it said that everything was clean. But when they came out of there, they told Ramey and I not to say a word about it. nothing. So they didn't see any pieces or anything? They, it, the area was clean, but they did see the craft? Yes. Okay. And no creatures? No creatures. So... Uh, how did they react? What did they say to you, aside from don't say anything to anybody? Were they, did they look frightened? Did they look uh, worried? How did they... Uh, no, they uh, they just came over and just told us, you know, he says, uh, uh, the highway patrolman says, at least belongs to the government, you know, and uh, they'll take care of it. Did you have the sense, or did anyone have the sense at that point that the military had already been there? Uh, I bet I, I don't know. Uh, Reme, I believe uh, you dropped off earlier, but you've rejoined us. Sure. The highway patrolman and Jose's father left you in the pickup truck, walked to the craft, went into the opening, came back and basically told the two of you not to say anything. And that was, is that your recollection as well? It's, yeah, essentially, but uh, they were concerned uh, about uh, my dad worked for the veterans hospital. And so he says, you know, uh, it could jeopardize this job, you know. If so, uh, I'll talk to your mother, uh, you know. And uh, but uh, your dad doesn't need to know, uh, and, and as such. And that was basically it. Were you 
conflicted when uh, he said your dad doesn't need to go? No, doesn't need to know? We, <laughs> at the age of, you know, <laughs> at, at the age of seven, you know. You just, you just comply. Those days mm-hmm. are, you know, are, uh, you know, are, uh, uh, you know, meant to listen, you know, and, and that's what we did. I, you know, I didn't have any opinion, no. All right, we'll, um, we'll take a time out, come back, and uh, continue to discuss this remarkable event. Two witnesses joining us on the line 65 years later, recounting what they saw back in 1945 on the Padilla Ranch in San Antonio, New Mexico. We'll find out when they went back to the craft the third time what they saw, how the military got involved, and how that cleanup went. And how they managed to keep silent all these years. Jose Padilla, Reme Baca on the line from Washington and California in studio from Exopolitics Canada. Victor Vigiani, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. Don't turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of this sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Live from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sennett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. I have to constantly remind myself this is two years before Roswell, 1947, before the term UFO or even flying saucers was part of the, the you know, pop culture or the public lexicon. So let me ask you, uh, Jose and Remy, I mean, did you have any... You had never heard of the term UFO, I'm guessing, or or or, or flying saucer. I mean, what, what what did you think this might have been at that point? Not looking back, but at that time, did you have any you have any recollection of how you what you thought it might have been? Well, well, at first we thought it might be an airplane, but it you know, but then we found out it wasn't. It didn't look like any airplane. I mean, it, we were mystified. And at, at what point did the term UFO or extraterrestrial or alien or flying saucer sort of enter the picture for you, either of you? It entered the picture in 1947 uh, when, uh, on the radio, in fact, uh, uh, we heard uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, some type of a, of a flying saucer had uh, been discovered over uh, on uh, some ranch, uh, as such, uh, it, around Corona, which was around forty some miles to the uh, f- away from us, 
And uh, that lasted, uh, it was on the air, and uh, it lasted probably for about two to three hours. And then it was clamped down. They clamped it down nice and tight. Uh, came out on the newspaper. Uh, and uh, then you didn't hear about it again. The only thing we heard uh, about Roswell after that was people coming in uh, uh, in uh, uh, either they had a white shirt and a tie or they had a black suit on or a black black pants or a black uh, 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 coat or a hat, you know. And they'd come in asking questions of people and see if they knew anything about what they referred to as the Roswell crash, which really didn't crash in Roswell. It crashed someplace else. But in any event, there was a lot of people that, uh, that uh, in San Antonio that knew about it. And so whenever some people come in inquiring about it, they would talk to them and tell them about it. Then we started noticing that some of the people that said anything about Roswell you know, we're no longer around. So we got to asking, you know, some of our neighbors and so forth, what happened to uh, Cruz, you know, and uh, he's, he's not around anymore, or some lady. And it says, oh, it says they're over at the sand. Didn't want to sound stupid, so we didn't ask what the sand was because you didn't ask questions as a kid. You listened, you know, and that was pretty much the, the way it was. And uh, then uh, eventually we got to listening to people referring to the sand, and we found out that the sand was a sanatorium over in a place called Las Vegas, Las Vegas, New Mexico. And that's where people were sent. If they claim to have seen something in, uh, in, in near Corona. About Roswell, yeah. And did the 45 crash, uh, the crash that you witnessed, ever come up in any of any discussions around town? No. No, I did not. Okay, did so not. Uh, take us back to um, uh, the 18th and August 18th, and uh, uh, your, uh, your father, uh, the, Jose, your father, the highway patrolman, go and inspect the craft. They come back to the truck. They say, don't say anything to anyone. What happens after that? Wait. We got on uh, uh, the, the pickup truck, they got in the car, and we came back to the ranch. Then uh, it was um, a couple of days after that, that's when uh, this uh, soldier appeared in there, when uh, Remy and I were coming in the back door of the ranch, you know, uh, with groceries. And this soldier was there talking to my dad. So we went out there, you know, to hear what they were saying, and uh, I noticed that he told my dad that he was going to have to uh, uh, cut the fence in order to get a uh, weather balloon that belonged to the the government service general. And my dad asked him, you know, why did he have to cut the fence? Is that because where the cattle guard is, he won't fit through there, so we have to make a wider uh, gate there to get it out. He actually used the word weather balloon. Yeah, weather balloon. What did you What did you think when he said that, weather balloon? Well, when I was uh, uh, back in the ranch with my dad, a few times we collected 
a few weather balloons that belonged to the government. And that wasn't no weather balloon. <laughs> that's that's an amazing uh, contrast that two kids are listening to two adults talk and uh, you admitting to yourself and saying to yourself, this is not a weather balloon. That 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 is an amazing. So after they had the discussion um, about that, uh, what what happened after that? How did that day unfold? And then when did you get back there again? Uh, we started sneaking out there uh, next couple of days and uh, washed from up above the ridge. At that time, though, they they had uh, uh, soldiers, the military. They had five men that used to come there on a jeep to work on that uh, A-frame that they were building for that uh, uh, object. Mm-hmm. And uh, at getting pretty close to the evening, uh, we noticed that uh, four men used to jump in the jeep and take off, and one used to stay in post until uh, it was... Uh, uh, the last day, which was, it was a Saturday, the last day, you know, that when we were there, uh, that's when they had that uh, object loaded on the low boy. Was that August, uh, August the 26th? It was the 25th, I believe. 25th, okay. Was the man on post armed? Yes, they were. Was the area lit when they left? Did they light it up? Pardon me? Was the area of the, the crash site, was it uh, lit? Did they have searchlights or anything uh, lighting the area? Uh, no, they didn't. All they had is just that uh, uh, headlights from the pickup trucks and uh, where they were tying down uh, the, the objects on it. And how, how many days did the, the military's sort of recovery salvage operation continue? It was about six days. And did they pretty well pick the area clean? Was there anything left after uh, they... Some of the things that I noticed, we noticed that uh, during the day while we were washing, uh, a lot of the debris that was there, you know, they were just raking it out to a, to a crevice there. They shoveled it back into the crevice and buried it? Yeah, and buried it. But I guess they didn't want to take it, or they were too lazy to pick it up. Well, they didn't want to carry it. That's rough terrain. Mm-hmm. Up the hill. Aside from the actual avocado-shaped craft, how big were the other pieces? Were they were they tiny bits? Were there some fairly sizable pieces? Uh, they were uh, just uh, pieces of metal. You know, there was. Uh, uh, I don't know if it was worse for them to pick them up or not. You know. But were there large pieces? Like, uh, how how big would the average piece of metal been? Uh, about two inches by three inches. So quite small. Yeah. It was just a shrubbery that was there from that uh, shredded, from that uh, uh, space uh, ship. Were they doing anything specific to the craft, or were they just building this mechanism to get the craft into they the frame? They were just uh, uh, making that, uh, building up that L-frame in order to get it under. They got it mounted under, right? How did they get the craft out of the sort of the trough onto the truck? Uh, they had an a uh, uh, a truck with an a frame winch. Mm-hmm. They lifted up. Okay, now at that point, I understand if the story flows along the way you described it, that they did this, got it up onto the truck, 
and then they dispersed. They they left, and then what happened when they left? Did did all of them leave, or just just some of them? Uh, there were uh, all five of them got in the jeep, and they took off. We noticed. That's when uh, Remy and I decided to uh, go down down there and see what it what it was like. So my image of that is, I mean, I I remember being young at that age and curious and you know you're out with your buddy you're watching something going on that's really really bizarre you're hiding behind rocks and then these military men come in put this thing on the truck and then you're you're laying down or you're sitting down or you're on a crevice or looking down and then you decide let's go for it is that how did that come about well everything was cleared so we thought you know well this is the best time to uh, go in there and inspect it you know so what did you do? Well, we went down all the way down there, and we seen that uh, it was loaded, all tarped down and tied. Uh, I told Remy, untie that rope from there, you know. He went ahead and untied it, lift up the tarp, and I <clears throat> climbed into the trailer, you know, and through that hole. You actually so, entered into, you went back into the craft? Yes, I went in there. Was it dark? Uh, it was pretty dark, you know, but... Uh, with a left up the, that uh, tarp up, you know, the light shine up a little. Done a little light in there. What did you see? Uh, there was nothing in there, except for that uh, there was a panel on one wall. A panel with what the dials and, and there was a uh, there was no dials or nothing. There was just a panel there in the wall. There was uh, this piece of material there that uh, uh, you could turn it turn it around in circles. A piece uh, of material you could turn... it off, okay. and I couldn't. So I jumped off the trailer, you know, went over and got a cheater bar, a bar, and I went back in there and pried it up, and it, I ripped it right off. And I, this was the piece that you took home? Yes. And you said it, it, you could turn it around in circles, so it was like a dial? It... it uh, to me, it, 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 I don't know, it looked like a boomerang. A boomerang? A boomerang. You know, one of those mm-hmm. things you throw up in, in the air and then it comes back. <laughs> How large? Uh, about uh, 13, 14 inches long. Who has that piece now? Uh, it's up in Washington. So, Remy, you have that piece. That's right. To me, it looked like a sundial, you know? A, a giant sundial, you know? Metallic? Yeah, it, it, that's what it looked, because that's the only thing I could compare it with. I'd seen some pictures in, in some of the school books, you know, that that my uh, uh, family had at home, you know, and, and so, you know, you look at pictures and so forth, and it kind of looked like a, you know, kind of like a sundial. You know? Remy, you've had this 13, 14-inch piece of metal for 65 years? Uh, no. No. Uh, essentially, what uh, what happened uh, is that uh, after they took the craft, we got that piece, and Jose had it for a few days uh, at his house, and then he uh, brought it over to me because some uh, soldiers were either were going through the uh, through their house and their tool sheds and so forth. And uh, he was afraid that they would uh, find it uh, in, in their possession, and his dad would get in trouble. 
and so he brought it over and, and uh, had me keep it for a while. And so I did. I kept it for a, you know, for a while. Uh, basically, what I did is I took it and I undid the, some floorboards in uh, our storage, uh, the grain storage place. It was a little, a little building that we had that that we had across the street where we kept all the. Uh, harnesses and uh, plows and okay Remy let me just stop you there we're going to take a time out when we come back we'll uh, we'll get to uh, the rest of the details surrounding this piece okay. of metal recovered from the st- uh, the crash Jose Padilla Remy Baca two eyewitnesses to a UFO crash in 1945 Victor Vigiani in studio here on the conspiracy show my name Richard Serrett you're listening to an exclusive podcast of the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Uh, Victor uh, was just uh, pointing out something that you know, we had both uh, noticed, but he, he sort of verbalized it uh, off the air, and, and that is after Jose and Remy describe uh, the event of 1945, what they saw, Often you listening at home may notice this little pause, a noticeable pause after they speak before either Victor or I sort of jump in with another question. And it's not that we're, you know, grappling with what's the next question going to be and so that accounts for the pause. It's we're basically trying to wrap our head around and absorb this information that we're hearing from these two gentlemen uh, because, well, I can certainly say for my part, this is the first time I'm hearing this. So... I'm shocked and amazed along with you listening at home. And I'm attempting to pick up my jaw off the ground, even though this is probably the second time I've heard some of this testimony. So, yeah, that, that accounts for the, uh, the pause. Uh, all right. Now, before, uh, Remy, we get back to the, um, this boomerang-shaped piece of metal that, uh, that uh, you took from the crash and, and um, stored under the floorboards in a shed across the street from you, uh, I think, Victor, you wanted to go back to the actual uh, craft for a moment. Just for a second, guys. Um, either one of you can answer the question, because uh, I guess, uh, Jose, you were in there. Um, was there anything in the craft that was non-metallic? You, you described most of the stuff being uh, metallic in nature. Was there anything in there that was not metallic? No, there wasn't. Okay. Okay. And so it was pretty well picked clean. Was there anything else on the, I think you described the truck as a low boy, aside from the the hull or whatever of this craft, was there anything else on there? Anything that might have been inside in, uh, at one point? Uh, that I don't know, because it was, it was dark in there to, to see in there. The only thing that we could uh, see is up above on the rear uh, end of it, was a little dome. I don't know whether there for the pilot or whatever you know used to look out or. And you, neither of you witnessed the the the, uh, the military in charge of the cleanup actually extracting anything from the craft. You never got a good look at what they were taking out of the craft, or did you? Uh, no, no, we didn't. Okay, let's go back to the um, the boomerang-shaped piece of metal. Uh, and at one point, Ramey, it comes into your possession because Jose is worried that if they find it at his father's ranch, Jose's father will get in trouble. You're hiding it under the floorboards. Um, I mean, I, I'm trying to think, you know, as a seven or a nine-year-old, if I've got something like this in a shoebox under my bed, I mean, I'm going to be looking at that every five minutes. I mean, 
what was it that type of situation or did you just did you hide it and forget about it or were you constantly going over there and taking a look at this thing well let me go let me go back a little bit there uh when we were going towards the craft okay walking towards it you know uh, as such and i had seen a piece of um uh, of glitter under a rock and so i pulled that rock up and i took this piece of it was like a type of aluminum foil type uh, piece of metal and so uh, I, I took it in my hand and it was kind of crinkle, crinkled up under the rock and I took it and it kind of uncrinkled so it was kind of funny so I just took it and you know nonchalantly put it in my pocket we continued on uh, and uh, when Jose was in the craft uh, the, the big hole you know went in through the big hole and I was standing right you know with uh, like a, a foot in it holding the uh, uh, the the tarp, and uh, one of the things that that was quite prevalent all over it was these uh, uh, what we referred to at Christmas time as angel hair. I remember that as a child. Yes. Okay, and so I managed to take some of that from there and took it home. And for you know, uh, at least once in my lifetime, we had some real angel hair on there. It really glitter, glittered beautiful because we didn't have no electricity. We didn't get electricity in our house until the, the 1950s. But uh, that helped really, you know, really decorate that tree. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was, you know, it was really, you know, really pretty stuff, you know. Uh, I was, I mean, I was really impressed by that. But uh, anyway, going back to the, uh, to when I put it under the house, uh, put the piece, when Jose brought it over, and put it under the uh, uh, in the storage uh, uh, place. I uh, pulled the, the 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 boards up and uh, about three of the of those uh, floorboards because it's dirt dirt floor underneath there. And I uh, d- took it to about like the 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 northeast corner, and I dug a little hole and put it in and, and covered it up. And then I put the boards back on uh, as such and. Uh, uh, and left it there, and uh, uh, there was about this about that time. There was this friend of my dad's that that was a sheep herder, and he uh, every once a year they'd come in with the sheep because you know the ranch, a lot of the ranchers were were sheep herders. Uh, you know the guy that discovered the that craft, uh, the Roswell crash, was a sheep herder. He had sheep on his on his ranch, and so this guy worked for for those ranchers, and they were bringing in the sheep. And so every year he stopped by, and in lieu of rent, he'd give my dad a lamb. And so he came by and gave a lamb, and so he stayed there for a while in that room. And uh, so my dad was, uh, was home uh, on, uh, uh, on leave, I guess, from the hospital. They get so many days off, and so he came home. And he was home and doing various chores and so forth. And uh, one morning we were having breakfast, and... The sheep herder knocks on the door, and so I answered the door, and my dad said, yeah, tell him to come in, you know. And so he came in, and so they, you know, greeted each other, sat down, and uh, we were just about done with breakfast, offered him a cup of coffee, and uh, he had some coffee, and so he says, well, he says, uh, you know, he says, I'm here because uh, uh, last night while I was asleep, uh, I heard a noise, and uh, I woke up, and I looked out the window, and uh, where the well is and where the woodpile is, and I saw like a light out there, and I couldn't see what in the world was going on out there. 
But then I turned around. To, I was going to grab my rifle and go out and see what was going on. And as I turned around to do that, there was these creatures in my room. And they were pointing down towards the floor, the middle of the floor. And they were saying, Tesoro, Tesoro. Anyway, I grabbed my rifle and, uh, you know, I was going to tell them to get out of there, but I didn't have to. They just uh, went through the walls and left. So anyway, so my dad says, well, let's go take a look. You know, so they, uh, uh, they grabbed a, a shovel and a crowbar, and uh, so we went down there to the, to the, to the building, and uh, they undid the floorboards and uh, took a shovel and dug a hole where one of the creatures had pointed is Tesoro, Tesoro, but they didn't find anything there. So they put the floorboards back on, and, and, uh, uh, and uh, so we left, and my dad assured me, if anything happens, let us know. You know, we'll take a look at it. And I was, I mean, I was praying like I'd never prayed before. That they didn't find it? That they didn't find it, because then I would have to tell my dad, you know, and in right. those days, they didn't spare the rod, you know? Ah. Uh-huh. Anyway, so we had, uh, da- uh, Jose and I had uh, named it Tesoro, that piece. Ah, uh, which is Spanish it was for? supposed to be a piece like, like we, you know, we lost, that was during the war, and so the, we lost a lot of family in the war. And uh, so we always asked asked them for a, maybe a, a bracelet or a ring, anything to remember them by when we were saying prayers for them. Right. Uh, as such. And so uh, that was supposed to be a souvenir, and we named it Tesoro. Uh, you know, there's, uh, nobody knew what the name of it was. But anyway, in any event, uh, that was pretty much, uh, uh, you know, the end of that uh, uh, the years that I lived there afterwards, I never did see that uh, sheep herder again. He was probably didn't want to come and stay there anymore, you know? Did his description of these creatures, did they match your description of the creatures? Absolutely. Yeah, he said they were, you know, they had big eyes, you know. And who actually used the word tesoro to begin with? Was it the creatures that used the word? Yeah, the creatures were the ones that, that said tesoro, tesoro, and put a... Okay, so the, the the creatures used the word. The sheep herder heard those words somehow, no, and he, you know he 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 said that they they were talking <clears throat> to him, but not in speech. This they were putting all this stuff. He said, you know, the uh, he used another word for it, you know, uh, but uh, you know the, you know they put all this stuff in my mind, you know. Right, but you had used that same word previous to that to describe this this yeah. particular. But only between you and uh, only and between Jose. you and Jose. Yeah. But the creatures actually used the word. Just My horrible. goodness, yeah. that is. Do you have any inkling, uh, or did you have any inkling that those creatures that showed up uh, before the shepherd were the same creatures that were in the craft that, that you saw? <laughs> you know what? I didn't want to believe any of that. It's too much for a seven-year-old. Sure. I can yeah. certainly sympathize with that. You know, it was too much. You know, we just, I mean, I just, I wanted to live my life, you know, and which we did, you know, after that, uh, after that incident, uh, essentially before Jose was ready to come home or to go to California because I think uh, somebody was sick in the family or somebody had died or something. 
In any event, uh, at, at that point, I had taken the little aluminum piece, put it in a can of Prince Albert, and put it in the well and under the under the windmill to save it with my. I had some Indian head pennies, and so that so I wanted to you know that's where I put it to save it. There, that's where I kept stuff. You know, my little hideaway place. Right, your tesoro. Well, that's where I kept it. And then one day, uh, my dad uh, was on vacation, and he had been working on the on the windmill. the uh, The cylinder was giving him some problems, and he had tried to fix it. And he was really disappointed. He says, "You know, I usually can fix anything, but you know, this thing is really giving me trouble. You know, uh, I'll, you know, why don't you and Jose try and do something with it?" And so. Uh, Jose came by and we took it off and we took it down to Socorro and see if we could get it welded, you know, uh, as such. That, because the, 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 the threads were slipping. They were just worn. And so we took it over there and the, the welder said, well, I can't do anything with it. You've got to get a new one because it's made out of brass and uh, can't weld brass. So we were kind of disappointed, went home and started putting it back together. And I said, Jose, you know, right behind you, there's, you'll find a little can of Prince Albert. He says, okay. So he reached over and he says, okay. He says, open it up. And he says, oh, yeah. I says, remember that piece? Oh, yeah, there it is, you know. Let's try it. Maybe this will, will, will hold those, that, that metal on those threads, you know. And so it was a little strip, maybe like uh, four inches long. And maybe uh, at the most half inch uh, or an inch wide, and put it put that on you know on the on the on the cylinder and put the lid on it and we started cranking on it and uh, got the two Stilson wrenches and we tightened it up and it held. Beautiful, you know. Uh, we were really happy that we had fixed that because my dad was really really glad about that, you know. And, so showed it to him. We turned the windmill on, and it started pumping water. That was great. Uh, in uh, before, I think fifty-three or fifty-four, Jose left for California. Fifty-five, I left for Washington, and uh, I had then by then completed the first year of high school, and uh, uh, came to Washington and went to school here and so forth, and went on with life. Uh, got involved in a lot of things, got married, and uh, we had a family. I try to tell my wife about what I had experienced as a, as a young kid over in, in, in New Mexico, and she really wouldn't have nothing to do with it. Uh, and uh, as such, you know, her, you know, her brother, my brother-in-law was a Jesuit. You know, she had graduated from uh, the school, Catholic school. You know, it was a very Catholic Italian family firstborn priest, you know, tradition. And so, you know, I couldn't argue with that. And so uh, I pretty well put it on the back burner. You know, it was not an issue to me. Uh, it, you know, it was not all that important. All right, listen, so, we'll, uh, sorry uh, to interrupt, Ramey. We'll uh, take another time out, come back, and uh, we'll find out as well how Jose was able to uh, pick up his life and move on and, and put something... I'm not sure how you put something like this on the back burner, but uh, you managed to. And uh, we'll pick up the story from there. UFO crash in San Antonio, New Mexico in 1945. Two eyewitnesses. We're getting a first-hand account here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. So here we are in 1955, roughly 10 years after the two Hispanic boys witnessed this UFO crash. Jose, you had moved to California by this point? Yes, I did. I moved uh, uh, over to California in 1951 and uh, went back. Then I moved back out here to California in 1955 and uh, started working over here in California. And uh, it was September 16th, 1956, when uh, I went back over there to pick up uh, my friend uh, Remy to bring him up here with me. And uh, he was gone. He was he gone. Yeah, he, he was gone already. You couldn't find him. Oh, so you lost, you lost touch with each other? Yes. For how long? Until uh, 2003. Oh, my. Wow. That's when we got discovered by my uh, son and him, Remy. So all the, those years you had no one to talk to about this? Uh, no. That must have been very difficult. Uh, well, uh, I came back over here after uh, I didn't find him over there. I uh, got married and uh, uh, started raising a family. Did you ever mention it with them, to them? Uh, no, not until uh, 2003, when uh, we got discovered, when my wife uh, uh, heard about it, because she didn't believe anything about about this, you know, and I started talking to her. How about your father? Did, did the two of you ever discuss it again? Uh, no. No, we didn't. Because he, he, he worked for that uh, government... Uh, uh, and uh, at that time, you know, uh, my dad was a very patriotic, you know, and uh, what he would say, you know, goes. He didn't want to discuss it. Uh, no, it, he was uh, always real, real quiet. You know, he never discussed anything like that. In his... Did anybody ever come to talk to him about it from any uh, part of the government or whatever? Well, no, if I... If I uh, uh, if, if they did, you know, because uh, uh, I took up from there uh, at 11 years old, you know, I, I wouldn't notice, you know, I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Tell us about, I got to ask you about that, that, um, that piece of uh, metal that you used to fix the, uh, the, uh, the windmill. How, uh, how long was that operational with your little uh, handiwork there? Well, back, I'll tell you, back in 1996, I went back over there because Remy had sold that house to a friend of mine. And that little meal was still going. Was still going. With that same piece of metal? Yes. Victor, off the air, you described that as what? The first piece of alien back-engineered technology. That's probably true. That's probably true. Yeah. And these, and the, the new owners had no idea. I mean, they didn't have no idea what... Uh, what uh, fixed that thing. As far as you know, is that piece of metal still there? Uh, I don't know whether if it's still there because uh, he turned the, the tank, the water tank, he turned it into the swimming pool, and I noticed that uh, the windmill uh, tower is not there. I believe he uh, set up a uh, electrical water pump. All right. 
Tell us about your your reunion uh, with Remy back in 2003. This is uh, 56, what, 47 years later. Well, we we met again. Yes. Um, uh, my son was out in Santa Fe getting some information for, uh, gene- he's a genealogist, and Remy happened to be... Uh, uh, out, um, Remy's uh, brother happened to be there, and uh, they started talking to each other, and they introduced to each other, and then uh, uh, um, uh, Remy's brother asked my son <coughs> if he was born there, if he was from New Mexico, and he told him no, he said, but my dad was born in San Antonio. That's when uh, uh, he exchanged uh, phone numbers, and uh, he called me up, my son called me up, and he says, do you know um, anybody about Remy Baca? <laughs> and I says, yeah, that was my best buddy, you know, when we were young. That's when he gave him the phone number, and that's when we, uh, he called me up from Washington. And that's where we started talking back again. Do you remember that first conversation? What was the first thing out of your mouth? Oh, I don't know if it was tears. They came out or what? <laughs> Remy, what was your recollection of that first conversation with your, well, your the first, friend? Uh, the first conversation was, was this. Says, you know, before you say anything, did you tell any of your family about what we found out there? And I said, yeah, but they wouldn't believe me. He says, same here. He says, same here. That's the same problem I had. And your first face-to-face? We were on, on the telephone. Yes, but after that, your first face-to-face meeting. The first face-to-face meeting was oh, uh, probably uh, like a, a, a few years later uh, when uh, uh, we were in California for a few days, and uh, we visited and got together with him for a few hours, uh, basically. Uh, but I might want to take you back a little ways about that little piece of metal yes. that we put in that uh, cylinder. Uh Jose was out there, and uh, you know, uh, basically at, at the you know when he went back the last time he went to the farm, uh, as such, and he uh, uh, and he got that piece of metal that he had there, the 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 uh, you know the, the big piece, and he took it home. He took it to California. Uh, in 1964, uh, my dad uh, came over to visit us in Washington, and so. Uh, uh, he came over to and he stayed at the house for a couple of days, and uh, uh, so my wife uh, fixed him uh, uh, dinner, uh, lamb chops, which was his uh, favorite. That's why that lamb every year was so important. To right, him right. Over there. Anyway, uh, so he she fixed him lamb chops, and we were sitting around the table with our kids and so forth, and uh, and they were you know met met their grandpa, you know, and so. Uh, uh, we're sitting there, so he says, you know, Remy, he says, you know, I meant to tell you something, you know, that, you know, when you fix that cylinder, that's been, a, you know, a long time, you know, and it's still going, you know, it's still working, you know. I says, I don't know what you did, but, boy, it's still working, you know, and I could never have done that. Mm. And uh, I said to myself, you know, uh, I can't tell him. He'd never, he could never... He could never get his hands around it, you know. Uh, alien technology, you know. I mean, he, if, you know, if he saw, you know, it's just like if he, if you talk to him about a cell phone, you know, he would never understand. You know, it's too been. been no, too I think long. that's an apt analogy. Listen, 
I, I've got to take one more quick time out. When we come back, we have to find out about the testing of this piece of metal, the sizable okay. piece of metal that you had. Uh, we'll do that with Jose Padilla, Remy Baca, Victor Vigiani in studio from Exopolitics Canada. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. And uh, just a, a, a tad under five minutes left in the program, and uh, Victor, uh, you and I, of course, uh, very anxious to know about this, uh, this, this piece of metal uh, that, that was in Remy's possession for some time and, and the testing that went on. Yeah, I just want to find out uh, what type of analysis that, uh, that you chose to have this uh, metal undergo and what the results were. We, uh, we had it uh, looked at through an electronic uh, microscope. And uh, essentially, some of the you know some of the things that they uh, uh, that they found uh, were the the uh, the concerns of the of the scientists that look at looked at it uh, were these little they described them as little insect like like bugs in there that were squashed down. They felt that maybe that was contamination of the metal, so they sanitized the metal. And they uh, went through it again, and uh, they were still present uh, there. And then also these uh, little hairs that they referred to as little carbon tubes, and so forth. And and basically that's what the, one of the, you know what the, what they were looking at, but they couldn't, they didn't know what uh, you know what caused that or what what they were. Yeah, who actually did the analysis? What organization? We uh, will be, in fact, uh, what we'll be doing is. Uh, uh, We'll will be uh, uh, releasing that information, the name of the uh, of, of the university that did it, and the people that were involved uh, in our book. Hey, you are obviously aware that this information could be the actual smoking gun that we've all been waiting for. Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, I'm I'm not that much of a ufologist. You know, I, I was kind of like a participant. Mm-hmm. In this, you know, and so I, you know, I re- I mean, I, you know, yeah, I, I guess, you know, but, uh, uh, yeah, that's why we, you know, would eventually, well, one of the reasons, you know, one of the reasons that we chose to, uh, you know, th- to disclose it, it's a, it's a, you know, it takes a long time, but uh, my wife eventually came around, 1994, we had a, uh, an encounter of a, uh, you know, of an event, basically, uh, we were living across a church there in Tacoma. And uh, one evening on, in, in July, uh, we were out there outside on the patio, and we, I, was, I used to work uh, close to the uh, McCord Air Force Base uh, with a lot of the pilots and so forth. And so uh, there was, I used to follow the planes up in the air and so forth. There's this little dot that we were following, that I was following, and I said, Jeannie, why don't you look at that for a while? I'm watching these others over there, the other planes. And so she followed it. Then a few minutes later, I asked her, well, how are you doing with that? And she says, why don't you look up above you? Look above me, and there's this craft about 200 feet up in the air, and it's as big as a football field. And we looked at that, and she's an artist, so she described the, you know, she drew the colors and drew the craft and so forth. And she knew knew more about colors than I did, and so we uh, we looked at that, and uh, probably uh, be, it was over 15 minutes that we uh, had a chance. It just made a right turn, and it came right over us very slowly, and then it went on went on towards the uh, McCord field, went up in the air, could see the dome on it, and uh, 
uh, and so you could see a plane going, you know, right by it, but it didn't seem to bother it. Uh, uh, last next day, I called uh, the Air Force base, and uh, they gave me the uh, uh, the uh, a place by the name of the Allen Heinick Center, and I called them and talked to them about it. And, and this that was pretty much it. And this is what basically convinced your wife that the phenomenon was real, That's which it. gave yeah. you permission, really, to go out and talk about this. Absolutely. And, and your. And, uh, the irony of it is this: you know the church uh, that we that we uh, that was across from us, about a hundred feet from our house. The name of the church is Visitation. Uh-huh. You that. <laughs> oh, that's it's it's uh, that's too much. Uh, we've got we've got it. Uh, Enough to chew on, probably to last us for another forty or fifty years. That's right. And um, well, and we'll also have your your book to look forward to, which is coming out in just a couple of months. And this is Born on the Edge of Ground Zero, Living in the Shadow of Area Fifty One. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, yours and Jose's book, correct? That's right. Absolutely. When when this is published, uh, or maybe uh, can we have you back on? Absolutely. All right. Let's let's please let's stay in touch because um, there's so much more to discuss here, and, and there is this there is, is a lot. That's one of the reasons why we decided to write a book. There's just not enough time to talk about it, you know, and really go through it, you know. Well, we appreciate your time tonight, and uh, and we thank you for coming forward and and uh, allowing us to uh, to discuss this uh, in in some length. Uh, Jose Padilla and Remy Vaca again. The book "Born on the Edge of Ground Zero: Living in the Shadow of Area 51." out in a couple of months. Gentlemen, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Victor, final uh, thought? Well, we definitely have to have them back, and gentlemen, uh, I'll be in touch, and uh, the story continues. Dan Ellison, thank you for technical production. Back next week, we'll talk WikiLeaks, among other things. In the meantime, don't be afraid. Nothing concealed. You know the rest. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.